Okay, folks, we are in Lesson 3 this morning. We are continuing to look at Paul's praise for the Trinity or the Godhead. And if you remember last week, we looked at, uh, we spent all of our time looking at how he praises God the Father for his role in our salvation. And so today we're going to focus on really the, the second and third part of his praise as he, number one, praises the Son, that is Jesus Christ, for his role in our redemption and our salvation, as well as he's going to praise the Holy Spirit for his continued role, as well as what he did when we got saved. So we're going to look at today specifically the praise for Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look. First of all, we're going to look at the praise of the Son. It's in verse 7 through 12. So let's look at those together. In Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. In that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of of his glory. So we're going to look at this. We're going to basically go through these verses together and see exactly what the Son has done as far as your salvation. So the first thing we're going to notice in verse 7 is he's going to praise him for redemption. He's going to praise him for redemption. Now, first thing I want you to notice when we talk about redemption, what does that mean? Redemption is a release from a state of slavery. Redemption is a release from a state of slavery. So Basically, Paul is saying, in him, in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, we have redemption. That is, we have been set free from slavery. Now, does anybody know what we were enslaved to? Now, to sin. All of us, before Jesus Christ, before you accepted him as your Savior, before you experienced salvation, were enslaved to sin. Period. And so what he did was is that he purchased us from the slave markets of sin. He purchased us from the slave market of sin. Now, how did he purchase us? The verse tells us right there, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his what? So the price, the price of, for our freedom was his blood. Now, let me just stop for a moment because sometimes even in our circle of churches, we can confuse things a little bit, especially with Baptists. Here's what we can do. We can say it is his blood, literally the blood pouring out of his veins that purchased us. What I want you to understand is in the New Testament, blood is often a picture of sacrifice. So the issue isn't the literal blood, it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's his sacrifice on the cross. Now, he shed blood on the cross, but it was his 
sacrifice. So through his sacrifice, because the fact of the matter is, from the moment in which he was taken to the moment in which he was crucified, did he bleed anywhere along that moment? Yeah. Whether he was being beaten up, whether he was being scourged. See, the emphasis of blood here is on the whole redemption aspect of his sacrifice. Do you understand? It's not just through the blood, because there's some weird, crazy teachings out there, like some folks or some Baptist preachers, and I can say this because I'm a Baptist preacher, who believe that in heaven right now is a pool of Jesus' blood. That it all got collected somehow. Well, it's not in the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? We want to go by what the Scripture says, and the Scripture is telling us here, folks, that it's his sacrifice. His blood is representative of his sacrifice here. Now, I want you to notice what he did with that. It's for our redemption was, number one, why he did it, but also for our forgiveness. Again, look at verse 7. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The word forgive means to carry away. So, Paul's kind of doing a parallel here. This is often true with Hebrew thought. He's doing a parallel. He's talking about the redemption, being set free from sin. But the parallel to that now in the verse is the forgiveness of our sins. And the word forgiveness there means to carry away. So, which brings up the next point there. Our sins have been taken away. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross... The junk in your life that brings guilt and shame and regret. And sometimes the junk in your life, the sin in your life doesn't even bring those three. Those things, through the cross, have been taken away. And, and we know from the Old Testament, it's, it's basically the aspect of as far as the east is from the west, this, our sins have been taken away. You know, the reality is, is that our sin has been taken from us. The whole aspect of it is that is you are not marked or identified by your what? Your sin with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? When you think about God and how he looks at you, you are not marked by your past failure. Now, isn't that something that we do as human beings, isn't it? How I many of you know someone and your way of identifying them is by what they did wrong in the past? You know what I'm saying? Oh, there goes so-and-so. Boy, you should, boy, I remember when he went and did that. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You maybe have even uttered something like that. You know? And what we do is, is we mark people by their what? Their sins. Oh, he's just a lush. You know, he's, 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 he's a drunkard. You know? And, and the reality is, is that when we talk about the aspect here... Forgiveness is all-encompassing. It's not just that he removes the guilt from us, but we're no longer marked by it. Now, he goes on, the basis for our forgiveness, now here's, here's how we know we have forgiveness. It was accomplished according to the wealth of God's grace. It was accomplished according to the wealth of God's grace. One commentator puts it this way. I thought this was interesting. When you talk about the wealth of God's grace, how, how abundant is that? I want you to think with me for a moment. How many of you like going to the ocean? How many of you like going to the ocean? I like going to the ocean. One of the beautiful things about the ocean is the, is the tide, isn't it? Have you ever noticed it never stops? 
The tide never stops. It's always coming in. And it's what? Wave upon wave. This is the picture that he is trying to proclaim to us here when he talks about the wealth of grace. It is a picture of grace upon grace. You see that? Grace upon grace. Jesus has grace upon grace for you and I. Is there any limit to it? Is there anything you could do that can exhaust it? Can you exhaust the waves of the ocean? No, you can't. See, this is the basis for our forgiveness. Now think about that. Let's back it up a little bit. Let's make it a little bit more practical here. Some of us here really struggle with our past and what we've done. We live in regrets continually. In fact, here's what will happen. If you are immature in your faith, if you are struggling in your relationship with Jesus Christ, almost I can almost guarantee you one of the thoughts that's going to happen in your mind is, is you're going to struggle with the forgiveness of Jesus. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about? And why you're going to struggle with the forgiveness of Jesus is because you're going to place your eyes on who? Yourself. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to place your eyes on yourself. Specifically, you're going to place your eyes on what you've done. But here's the reality. I want you to listen to me. Our forgiveness with Christ is not based upon who? Us. It's based upon who? Jesus. His grace. And our forgiveness comes as an abundance of what? His grace. It's out of the wealth of His grace. Do you understand? It's out of the wealth of His grace that He gives you and I forgiveness. Now, here's why. Notice something. Verse 8 and 9. Which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of His will. Now, here's what I want you to see. Here's another thing that He does for us. Christ enables believers to understand the mystery of of his will. He is enabling you and I to understand what the mystery of his will is. Now that is the theme that you're going to see throughout Paul's writings. He's going to talk about it specifically here. He's actually going to reveal to us later in this letter what the mystery is, and that is the combination of, of both Gentiles and Jews into the church. But the reality is that God wants to reveal his mystery to you and I. He wants to reveal his mystery to you and I. Now that's an awesome thing. So through his redemption, through his forgiveness, through his sacrifice on the cross, his part in the salvation process, he's given us forgiveness, he's given us redemption, he's now given us wisdom and understanding to understand what? God's mystery. The mystery of his will. To understand his will for our lives. Now, He's also going to bless us. Now, here's the purpose of his blessing. Look with me, second part of verse 9 through verse 10. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which which are on earth in him. 
Alright, now here's the purpose of his blessing. First of all, it was for his pleasure. He gets satisfaction in revealing his will. Now, this is the second time now. We notice this also with the Father. Remember, when we looked at God the Father's role in the salvation last week. The point very clearly was made that the reason why he did what he did in salvation was for his good pleasure. God gets satisfaction in bringing salvation to the lost. He gets satisfaction in forgiving you. It brings joy to him. He enjoys it. He gets pleasure in what? Redeeming you. He gets pleasure in what? Revealing His will to you. Isn't that an awesome thought? That God is, is, is pleasured by the reality of salvation. And here you see Jesus is pleasured by the reality of salvation. We're not talking about the Father here now in these verses. We're talking about Jesus. So think about that for a moment. This is Easter. We remember the resurrection today. Friday was Good Friday where we remember the cross. And you think about the cruel death that he suffered for our salvation. He gets pleasure out of the salvation that we've accomplished through what he's done. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? God enjoys us. He enjoys working in our lives. Now, here's his plan. Look with me, it was to what? Unite two groups of people. It was God's plan to unify all believers, both Jew and Gentile, in Christ. It was God's plan to unite all believers. Notice what it says. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things. What is he talking about here? All things. Well, first of all, the world's divided into two groups of people, isn't it? Now, we divide them in nationalities, but ultimately the Bible divides them into two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And the reality is is that he's brought all of them together and united them in Christ. Now, he goes on, and one thing salvation has accomplished for us is yet in the future. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Look with me at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now here's a couple things we're going to see. Number one, we're co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. We've obtained an inheritance Do you understand? The inheritance that belongs to Jesus, the glory that he left, Paul would later say in Philippians, that he would later retain when he went back, you and I share in that inheritance. Do you realize that? Bible, more and more, New Testament, specifically Paul, will over and over make this this statement that you and I are co-heirs. We're going to rule with Jesus. Isn't that an awesome thought? You and I, in the minds of Christ, are, in fact, Peter says this, you are a what? A royal priesthood. So, okay, right now, all the hubbub in the the news, a lot of people, I was noticing a poll, most people couldn't care less about it, but obviously the news does, is the royal wedding that's going to take place. How many of you have seen that? Okay? And and I saw an article where they're, they're polishing up the carriages. 
repairing the carriages. I think there's several different carriages that they're going to be using or whatever for that. Okay? So, I mean, that's, that's the life of the rich and famous, right? Okay. And that's what royalty is in the human mindset. But I want you to understand, according to the Bible, according to Paul, according to the New Testament teaching, you are royalty. Now, you can't cash that in right now. Don't go to McDonald's and say to them, hi, I'm Duke so-and-so. Okay, that, that's not going to get you anywhere, okay? But the reality is, is ultimately, you're going to rule with him. You're going to share in his inheritance. Think about it. When he says things like this, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I know some of you have the King James will say, in my father's house are many mansions. It actually means a dwelling place. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The, the issue is, is that we are going to be with him in his house. Now, I can't think of a better house to stay at, can you? As far as the inheritance that we have. This is what he's saying. Through Christ, the redemption process, he's giving praise to him. Not only for redemption, he's, not give, he's giving him praise for forgiveness. He's giving him praise for receiving, having his... God's Christ's will revealed to him, recognizing the pleasure that God gets from it. He's saying to us, through Jesus, he's giving a praise, what, for the future inheritance. You know, I, I, uh, I remember when I first got saved. It's 26 years ago this last week that I got saved. Freshman engineering student. And I listened to a Christian singer at that time by the name of Keith Green. How many of you know who Keith Green is? Okay. All right. Um, and I remember listening to one of his CDs, and in it he was saying, he was talking about that passage where Jesus says, I go to de- prepare a place for you. And he said, you know, he's been taking 2,000 years to build that place for us. And he said, God created this place in six days. And he said, you know, if he took six days to prepare this place, and it's been taken of 2,000, to prepare where we're going. Man, this is a garbage can compared to where we're going. And there's some truth in that. Folks, think about where your focus is. Most of us, and especially North American Christians, have our focus on making our lives, what? Comfortable here. Now, some of you have been stomping around this earth longer than I've been alive. Listen to me. You can't totally make yourself comfortable, can you? I mean, in a community like ours where we've seen economic downturn, how many times now? I don't think we've ever gotten out of it, have we? There is no job security. But yet we keep striving for here, don't we? Our inheritance is where, folks? Heaven. Shouldn't we be living for that? The, the passage, very, very commonly in the New Testament, we are known as sojourners, temporary pilgrims here. Our ultimate home is with, with where? Jesus. That's where our inheritance is. And what Paul's trying to tell us in this verse is, we are co-heirs with him. Now, here's the other aspect of it. We're co-heirs. We have an inheritance. But he also says that we are the inheritance. God made us an inheritance for Christ. 
Do you realize that you are something special to Jesus? The redemption work that has taken place in your life is part of the process so that you could be presented to who? Jesus. Paul talks about that over and over again. About wanting to present to him what the work that he accomplished. It's an awesome thought, isn't it? Not only do we have an inheritance with Jesus, look there, we are his inheritance. In fact, notice something. Verse 11 uses a word that we talked about this a lot last week. Being predestined. So it was already predetermined. What? To the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the what? The praise of his glory. There it's talking about that we should be to the praise of his glory. We are his inheritance. Because why? We bring, through the salvation that we've experienced, we bring what to Jesus, folks? Glory and praise. Because let's stop for a moment. Do you have anything to do with the salvation that you've experienced? No. Now, it's a good thing that we've got to remember that because statistics are showing in our churches 50% of people think that it's Jesus plus something else that's going to get them to heaven. Jesus plus doing all the right things. Jesus plus coming from the right family. Jesus plus going to church all the time. And so I think you need to recognize it is only Jesus who accomplishes your salvation. So because it's only Jesus, who gets the glory for you getting saved? Jesus. Do you get any glory? You can't. No. In fact, as we get into chapter 2, he's going to say that no man can boast. No man can glory in the salvation that we've received. Your salvation is purely because of who? Christ. Not because of you. Not because of you. Aren't you glad that it's not left up to a committee? Because, I mean, let's be honest. If it was left up to a committee to decide who would get saved, a lot of us wouldn't get saved, would we? Because, again, remember what I said earlier, we mark ourselves by what we've done in the past. And we have, we have listen, this is how we are as humans. We have determined who should deserve things and who should not deserve things. Is that not true? Paul will later go on in Corinthians and say that God has chosen what? The foolish things of this world to what? Confound the wise. See, salvation has nothing to do with us, folks. It has everything to do with Jesus. So then he goes on to verse 13 and 14, and he only devotes two verses, but they're two very significant verses, to the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look with me at verse 13 through 14. He's going to give a praise for the Spirit. Now, in him, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. First thing we're going to see here is what the Holy Spirit does through the role, the process of salvation is that he seals us. First of all, the way to salvation is trusting in his word brings salvation. He brings that really right out there in verse 13. 
after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. He's talking about that they trusted in his word. The gospel of salvation. Now here's the security of it, because here's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, because I know there's some folks out there that say you can lose it, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I want you to understand, look at what the Bible says. Don't go by what a, a teacher tells you. Look at what the Bible says. Verse 13, in him that's, you have also trusted after you heard the word of truth in the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, so it's talking about the process of salvation, look what happens. You were sealed, what? With the Holy Spirit of promise. Now here's the point. The Holy Spirit ensures the completeness of salvation. He ensures the completeness of salvation. So, for instance, the picture is, okay, I want you to picture it in your mind. A good book for us to think about this has to do with uh, the book of Esther. I want you to think back to the Old Testament for a moment, to the book of Esther. I remember the king... Haman came to the king and said, oh, there's a group of people. They need to be wiped off the face of the earth. They're causing problems to the kingdom, kill king. And, you know, if by your decree, let me, I'll take care of it for you. You don't need to worry about this. You make the decree and seal it in the law of the Medes and Persians, and I'll take care of it. And guess what he did? He sealed it. Now, here's what they would do in that time. Oftentimes, kings would have a signet ring. It is a ring with an impression upon it, you know, and they would, they would, Whatever the documents are, what would make it legal is, is they would have the king, they'd probably put a big blob of, of wax or something there, and then they would press down that signet ring, and that's what gave it validity. That you, It got sealed. And once it was in the laws of the Medo-Persians, it couldn't be changed. You remember that? So, okay, they can't change it now. Of course, Haman is exposed. He's hung on the gallows. And they can't reverse it. The king even says, well, I can't reverse the law that I've set in the law of the Medes and Persians. So what do they do? They set another law that happened the day before to wipe out everybody who's going to wipe out the Jews. And they set that in the law of the Medes and Persians. Why? They sealed it. For instance, when Jesus was buried, the tomb was sealed. When the tomb was sealed, no one could open that, that because it was sealed by Rome and the authorities. So do you understand the importance of a seal? Now here's what Paul is saying to us. Let's come back over to Ephesians now. When we come back to Ephesians, when he's talking about our salvation, listen to me folks, because you've believed, because you responded to his word and you've believed, your salvation is assured because you have been sealed, not with a signet ring, but with a person. What person, folks? Holy Spirit. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? Third person of the Trinity, God. God himself is your assurance. See, when you come to Christ, who enters into your life? Holy Spirit. You understand, the Holy Spirit is your seal of redemption. Isn't that an awesome thought? Again, it has nothing to do with who? Yeah, with you guys. It has to do with who? Jesus. And so, here's what he is. He's our seal until what? 
He's our seal of promise. He's of the completeness of salvation. Now, there's another aspect in which the Spirit is, has a role with us through the process of salvation. Look with me at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory? Here's what I want you to see. Here's the other role of the Holy Spirit. The, Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. He's our guarantee. Now let's stop for a moment because we live in an age where guarantees don't mean anything. You know, you know what I mean? Guarantees, I mean everything's got a guarantee, but when you read the fine print, they don't mean anything. Like how, many, how many of you remember Ginsu knives? My mother bought Ginsu knives. You remember they could cut a can and, and whatever? Okay. And remember, they had a lifetime guarantee that if they ever got dull, you could always go and get another what? Ginsu knife. Now, here's the problem. The company that makes Ginsu knives doesn't exist anymore, folks. How, how, how great is that guarantee? Is it worth the paper it's written on? No. So we have, now here, I don't want you to approach this text with your understanding of guarantees. Because this text shows us a different type of guarantee. Because what it's saying to us is that God himself is our guarantee. You understand what I'm saying? God himself is our guarantee of your salvation. Now here's the picture. I want you to picture in your mind. Go all the way back to Genesis in your mind. Because what we're talking about is salvation is actually the, is the expression of the covenant that God has made with us. And in, in Genesis, do you remember when Abraham was told to get, get some animals and he was to divide them and he divided them up, you know, along the path and he had birds and everything there. And then God caused him to come into a dream, go into, go into a deep sleep. And he saw a fiery furnace. And that fiery furnace was God himself, and God came down through the midst of those animals. Now, let me explain to you what's going on there. In that day, what they would do is, is if I was going to enter into an agreement with you, they would call it cutting a covenant. We would, we would basically, now, aren't you glad we don't, we don't do this, lawyers don't do this anymore. We don't, we don't have all of these animals stretched out. They're cut in half, blood everywhere. And then the two of you have got to walk down to the middle of it, and in that blood and all that gore, walk down through the middle of it to affirm your covenant with each other. That's what they did in the ancient culture. Now the problem is, when that happens with God and Abraham, only one person comes down through. What's the significance of that? Was that covenant based on Abraham? No, who's the only one who went through? God, it's based on God. This is what I want you to see. Let's go forward now to Ephesians here. This is what Paul's saying. When it comes to the issue of our salvation, our guarantee isn't us. Our guarantee is who? Jesus. Isn't that an awesome thought? Now listen to it. Think about it. The passage also tells you how long the guarantee lasts. Look with me at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until 
the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Here's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation until we meet Christ. Now, let me explain something to you. Oftentimes, especially in our circle of churches, we view salvation as a one-step process. But the Bible presents salvation in three steps. It presents it in justification, which is what we tend to normally focus on, is that you are justified the moment you believe and you're okay. But the Bible adds two more steps to the issue of, of salvation. Sanctification is where you become like Christ. And then ultimate salvation is glorification when you go to be with Jesus and you receive a what, folks? A new body. So what Paul is telling us here is that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of salvation. Until what, folks? Until the process is finished. So again, does that have anything to do with you? Do you see what Paul's doing here? Do you understand why he's praising the Lord? Do you understand why he's giving glory to God here? Because the issue is, is our salvation is not based upon what? Ourselves. Because here's what happens, folks. A lot of us operate in our day-to-day lives by our what? Feelings. So I'm going to explain something to you. I had a rough night last night. You know, we were celebrating Easter down at the Lori's family farm, and we were, I mean, it was just a big feed the whole time we were there, and, 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 I, and I drank all kinds of tea, even though it was decaf, I went to bed, and I wasn't going to bed. I was like, I'm up. I thought I drank decaf, you know, and I was like, oh, I guess I'm not. And, and I'm up, and, and I'm wrestling around and everything, and then the pear tree's in bloom in the back, so my eyeballs are like, you know, allergies are happening. Did I feel saved this morning? No. There are some of you who understand what I'm talking about. There are days when you don't feel it. But that's what we operate by, isn't it? When a passage like this tells us it has nothing to do with you and your feelings. It has to do with who, folks? Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God the Father, what they have done for us. Isn't that an awesome thought? Isn't that an awesome thought? Now, look, next week, we're going to progress right on, and Paul's going to enter into a prayer for the Ephesians. He's going to actually pray for them. Okay, we're going to close our time.